I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music, beefs, and feuds, and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about the kinks. Yes. They're one of my all-time favorites, and you know it's great because long before the Gallagher brothers were even born, the Davies brothers were pissing each other off on stage. It's great. Truly one of my favorites. Uh, Ray and Dave, the prototypical Britpop sibling rivalry. They even had a motto, the band that fights together stays together. Which was true until 1996 when they fought one too many times and they didn't stay together anymore. But unlike Oasis, it looks like they're getting back together, which is incredible. I can't even fathom how a new Kinks record is going to be received in 2020 or 2021. Yeah, it's pretty inspiring and like I think frankly pretty fortunate that these guys are still alive and like willing to play together. I mean, like the Kinks, like they really are like one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And Ray and Dave Davies are at the center of it. I mean, you mentioned the Gallagher brothers, and I think the Davies brothers have a similar dynamic. You know, the older brother is the songwriting genius, which really is true for Ray Davies. He's just a master with melody and lyrics. And then you have the younger brother, Dave, who is like the rock and roll wild man. And I think he's also like a genuinely important and underrated guitarist. Like if you love hard rock, heavy metal, punk, any kind of music that's loud and gritty, you have to give it up for Dave Davies. And you're right, the Kinks have such a weird spot in kind of like the British Invasion pantheon because like they definitely didn't have the commercial success of the Beatles or the Stones, and certainly not in the U.S. for reasons we'll get to later, but they had this incredibly crunch, like, like you said, really gritty early singles, but they didn't really invent themselves or reinvent themselves in the 70s as like a hard rock band like The Who did. But they were never really like a cult group either, like the zombies who had the big comeback in kind of the 90s and early 2000s with Odyssey and Oracle. They 
they really just were so consistent navigating all these really like micro eras from pop singles of the mid 60s to kind of more album oriented stuff with Village Green Preservation Society and Arthur in like early 70s. You've got like Muswell Hillbillies that kind of stripped down stuff and all the way through to the MTV age with like Come Dancing. Come Dancing's a hot song, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like the first Kinks song I ever heard. I remember seeing that when I was five years old, and I thought the Kinks were a new band, although they looked like a pretty old kind of new old, band. Yeah. But nevertheless, but yeah, I mean, I feel like the Kinks have this like really unique combination of having like a dozen recognizable hits that if you like rock music, you know songs like You Really Got Me and All Day and All the Night and Lola and all those songs. But like they're not as overexposed as like the biggest songs by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So like they're this classic rock band that still feels like a little underground, which I think makes them eternally cool. And they also have Ray and Dave, like these battling brilliant brothers who have just supplied us with so much drama and violence <laughs> over the years. I mean, like these guys were banned from entering America for several years. I mean, that's how crazy these guys are. I mean, there's just so much to discuss here. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. <laughs> Dave Davies once observed, I think Ray was happy for only three years in his life, and those were the three years before I was born. Oh, <laughs> which is strikingly similar to, I think, what something Liam said about Noel, too, which is one of the first of many similarities we'll see between these brothers. Oh, yeah. Dave may have a point. Ray was the youngest boy uh, in a family with six older sisters. So for years, he had, you know, it was just doted on by the entire family. And then Dave came along and kind of stole his thunder, stole his limelight. So I, I, I can see how that those seeds will be planted early on in their relationship. Yeah, old story. The baby comes along and upstages the older brother. Oh, yeah. And there was an early incident that kind of really set the stage for, I feel, think that they sort of lived this out in their relationship many times over the years. Uh, they were just having a little fist fight around the house, as, as little brothers do. And uh, Dave pushed Ray, and Ray fell and hit his head against the family piano, and He's out. He's on the floor. He's on his back. Dave thinks, oh, shit, I, I, just, I just killed Ray. And he goes over and, you know, checks to make sure he's still breathing. Right when he's in front of Ray's face, Ray just socks him right in the face. Just opens his <laughs> eyes. You know, an incredible sneak attack. And, uh, and Dave later said, you know, that's symbolic of our entire relationship. I felt pleasure that I'd knocked him over, then concerned that I'd hurt him. But all he really wanted was to get back at me. Yeah, and if you were going to make a biopic about these guys, and by the way, like someone needs to make a biopic about the Kinks or like a really good documentary because this is such a great story that I feel like has been sort of undertold a little bit. But, you know, I, I think uh, like some other crucial scenes that would be in that movie were would be like when Ray Davies got his first guitar. Like that story is so crazy. Like he got this guitar from one of his older sisters and then she goes out dancing later that night and like literally dies on the dance floor. I mean, can you believe that story? On his birthday. It's, a, it's on his birthday, too. And it just traumatizes him. He goes into himself, basically. And it kind of changes the course of his life. He becomes this very introspective, sensitive person. And then you have Dave Davies, his younger brother, who has his own traumatic event that happens when he's a teenager. He ends up uh, impregnating his girlfriend when he's 15. And his parents and the girl's parents conspire to keep these two apart. And Dave doesn't actually meet his daughter, I think, until he was, like, in his 30s. Oh, yeah. It might have been in the 90s. I, I, it was a long, long time, yeah. And it feels like these events helped to shape who these guys became. Because you have Ray Davies, who is this brooding, 
sensitive, introspective person. And then you have Dave, who, again, he's like the wild guy. You know, he's the wild child. And it just forms this sort of oil and water combination that, again, you know, we talked about Noel and Liam Gallagher. There was a very similar dynamic there, like where Noel was the more introspective one and Liam, the younger brother, is a little crazier. And on one hand, you could say like, okay, these guys needed each other to balance each other out. But at the same time, because of these contrasting personality traits that they had, it just seems like they rubbed each other the wrong way from the beginning of the relationship. And this carries on into their approach to music, too. Ray's told these stories about how when he first started learning guitar, he would just anguish over learning these really elaborate guitar-picking styles. And Dave was like, okay, I learned five chords, mastered it now, like, I got this. And it, it even comes through in, in their their playing, too. Like, I think of something like the opening of, um, of Shangri-La with the really delicate finger-picking. And then listen to, like, any Dave Davies solo on some of their early singles. And it just sounds like he's just beating the guitar with his fists. He's just wrestling the solo out of it. So, yeah, it definitely comes through in their music, too. But as you said, very much like Liam and Noel, the band that really seems like it was more Ray's band was actually started by Dave. Dave was had this rock and roll impulse. And even though he's probably not as good a musician as Ray was at this stage, he was the one who... Uh, first wanted to express himself in a rock and roll band. So he got together with the Kinks bassist Peter Quaife, and Ray was sort of more deep into art school and focused on painting and film and all these other things. So he ended up joining later, um, and it was really the three of them, Ray, Peter, and Dave. And some of their early names are great. They were the Bow Weevils for a while. Isn't that an amazing? That sounds like it could be like, like a 70s, like, you know, on the support act for like the Cramps or something. That's a great name. I think the Kinks is a pretty incredible name too. I mean, there's something about that band name that feels like pretty modern. Like you could imagine a band in England from the late 70s being called the Kinks. Like it sounds like like a punk band name like 10 years before punk existed. You know, it's not in the typical tradition of like, you know, the Beatles or, you know, some of the other or the Hollies or other British invasion sounding bands that have more cutesy sounding names. Like yeah. there was always something like a little menacing, I think, about the kinks. And I think a lot of that has to do with the dynamic between Ray and Dave because pretty much from the beginning, I mean, these guys were at each other's throats. Like, they would fight everywhere. You know, they'd fight in the studio. They'd fight backstage. You know, they're fighting in the back of limousines. You know, there's this story that uh, one of their early producers tells about how, uh, you know, he would go to Ray and say, how about a, doing a tour of Germany? And Ray would agree to it. And then he'd go to Dave. And then Dave would want to do the tour too. And then once Ray heard that Dave wanted to do the tour, Rave wouldn't want to do the tour. Like, that's the kind of relationship <laughs> that they had. Very much, you know, contradicting the other person. Um, you know, if he wants it, then I don't want it, and and vice versa. But I think, like, when you listen to the Kinks' music, I feel like that tension just permeates all of their best records. Like, to me, like, what made the Kinks unique is that there's this combination of being this sort of, there's this very kind of prim Englishness to it on one hand. Like, the melodies are very beautiful and ornate uh and ray's lyrics i think are like pretty literary for like especially like a british 60s singer songwriter like he was i think way ahead of like the other people in the british invasion in terms of like writing these story oriented lyrics so you have that aspect but then undercutting all that stuff is this like just aggression uh, running underneath everything where it feels like it's going to spill over into violence at any moment, you know? So you have the, you have the intellect and you have the violence going hand in hand. And it's really, it's what makes that band special. And it's crazy that it's the same band that made like, you know, Mr. Pleasant 
and then all day and all the night. I mean, you feel like those are just two completely different sides of the coin. It's amazing they could do both of those and do them so well. Yeah, and of course, their first big hit ends up being You Really Got Me, which is, I think, like one of the most important rock songs ever. I mean, that might sound like hyperbole, but like you hear that song, and that song predates punk, it, cre- it predates heavy metal, and yet you could hear the roots of those musics when you hear that song. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that that you hear the roots and also just Dave's guitar style of power chords was so, so important for, for young people learning guitar. I mean, that was when I first learned guitar and was having trouble with chords and stuff. Like you get the power chords that Dave uses and you feel like, oh, I can actually play a song. It's so great for your confidence. It's like guitar training wheels or something. And I feel like if you can play a riff that you recognize, like you really got me as an like a, when you have, you know, two months of guitar under your belt or something. Like, that's really important. So I'm thinking of all these like young guitarists starting out who grew in the guitar legends, who probably that was like their first riff they learned. But of course, as with most things in the kink, that was something that the Davies brothers fought over as well. Sort of how that guitar sound in that song came about. Dave claims that he bought a really cheap little amplifier and it sounded terrible and you couldn't get a good sound of it. So just out of sheer curiosity, he took a razor blade and cut the speaker cone in the back. Just, just, cut holes in it just to see what would happen because it was a cheap piece of garbage. And then that's what led to that kind of like dog barking guitar sound that he got for You Really Got Me. Um, And that meant a lot to him. Like he felt that was like a huge part of his legacy. Of course, 50 years later, Ray claims that he did it. And he also had a um, a jukebox musical in London uh, that kind of supported that the story that that Ray uh, invented this guitar sound. And Dave got really uptight about it and made a whole long Facebook post about it. He said, my brother's lying. I'm just flabbergasted and shocked at the depth of his selfish desire to take credit for everything. I never once claimed songwriting royalties on You Really Got Me, yet this song would not have happened without my guitar sound, which is true. Yeah, I mean, and it's fascinating how, you know, this song, it was their breakout hit. It it came out in 1964. So, you know, 55 years ago, over 55 years ago. And yet the core of the conflict between Ray and Dave you can just see it all play out in this story because from Dave's perspective, the thing that he's always talked about over the years is that he feels that Ray is incapable of giving him credit. And there's an interview I read with him once where he likened uh, his brother to a vampire. And he says, he said, quote, Ray sucks me of my ideas, emotions, and creativity. He's a control freak. And You know, this is something that exists in many bands. You know, we've talked about this in other episodes where, you know, there's someone at the head of the band that is looked at in the media as being the auteur of the band and they get a lot of the credit. And then the other people in the band come to resent it because they aren't getting credit for their contributions. In this story, you add the sibling rivalry aspect to it, which is like steroids, basically, like just pumping it into like the usual resentments that exist in a band. And it just totally exacerbates it. Um, from Ray's perspective, though, I don't know. Did you ever see that documentary, uh, Imaginary Man, that came oh, out? Oh, it's like, great, yeah. It's like Julian Temple movie came out in 2010. There's this moment like early in the movie where like they're walking through, I think it's like a schoolhouse. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, like the old theater, yeah. Yeah, like one of the first places that the Kinks ever played. And they bring up You Really Got Me, and Ray Davies says very seriously that like that was the day I was born. Right, you know, like like that was the beginning of my life, and you really feel that for him. Like this isn't just music for Ray Davies. This is like his legacy. This is like such a huge thing for him, and it feels that way. I think to Dave Davies too. But like 
they're both fighting over this thing. It's almost like two kids fighting over a toy. It's like, I had the toy first. It's mine. And they've been pulling at it, you know, for decades now. And it really, again, it began with this first big hit that they had. I love that Ray compared that song to something by Stockhausen in, in that same scene <laughs> in the documentary. It's like, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, it's a cool song, Ray, but I'm not sure if it's like, you know, avant-garde jazz level. But, uh, but no, you're right. I mean, it happens again and again. Dave feels that Ray is not only pompous, but just is really not very generous with, with awarding credit for input and help. And it's really sad. He said, you know, I, I looked up to him as a brother and a collaborator, and he looked at me as a rival. And I, it's, I think sad, not only as a musical partner, but as you say, as a member of the family, too. Ray thought of Dave as being this crazed kid playing these amazing guitar riffs. I think that's a direct quote from him. And he's not wrong, but you sense this really sort of dismissive tone in that description of what Dave brought to the band, which was such a vibe. I mean, I think the name The Kinks was actually born out of all the the kind of wild fashions that Dave was wearing, like the long Chelsea boots with the huge heels, which were called kinky boots in England. And like he would wear his girlfriend's jackets and things like that and center part his hair and and just kind of like play with androgyny years before, you know, Bowie was on the scene or anything too. So yeah, for considering how much of the soul that Dave brought to the band, I, I can see why he'd be so frustrated. When again, you know, I think when you listen to the Kinks music, there's a very obvious combination of like just this very delicate, beautiful songwriting and like the aggression and the violence of how the songs are played. And it's like the magic of that band because you get everything that you could possibly want from a rock band. You get like great melody, you get, you know, just insightful lyrics, and yet it's very visceral, gut level music. Um, and you don't have that if you don't have Dave contributing what he's bringing to it along with, obviously, these great songs that Ray was writing. And it's really funny to think, because I was really trying to figure out, like, who would he, he, Ray have been inspired by as a lyricist in that era? Because you say that there's, they're so literate. And I'm thinking, like, maybe Bob Dylan, but I can't even... Because Sid Barrett, I think, was another 18 months or two years down the road. Like, it, it really is so singular. I can't think of anybody that he would have drawn from. Maybe music hall stuff, I guess. I think he talks about that Imaginary Man, too. But, yeah, it really was so different to anything that was happening on the scene. Yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously, the, the things that people always talk about with the Kinks is their subject matter that they were writing about, um, well, first of all, writing very English songs. Like, unlike the Beatles and the Stones, the Kinks didn't try to sound American. You know, they were upfront with their Englishness, which is what has made them one of the most influential, if not the most influential, British rock band on other British rock bands. I mean, there's so many bands that have, like, just taken their cues from the Kinks, whether it's the Jam, the Smiths, you know, Oasis, you know, all the way down the line. Libertines, yeah. Exactly. But then there's also like the domestic things that he was writing about. He wasn't writing about the sort of typical sex, drugs, and rock and roll things. He was writing about regular people living lives, of, I guess, of quiet desperation, if you will. Mm. And I mean, and that seems like it was directly drawn from his own life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like like a kitchen sink drama put to, to music. I mean, Dead End Street and a devastating song. I mean, Shangri-La is incredible just way that it captured. I mean, all of obviously Village Green Preservation Society. Yeah, no, it, it's really interesting that it almost seems like he's drawn more from like like dramatists like Joe Orton or something like that than, than uh, Jagger and Richards or anything like that. But that's what Dave brought to it. But I also want to talk about one of my favorite incidents from the uh, their mid-60s period, which is Ray Davies' wedding. They're obviously their... Uh, <laughs> that's a great story. They're, they're butting heads 
uh, outside of the studio as well. Ray gets married. He asks his brother Dave to act as best man. His only brother Dave to act as best man. Um, Dave drinks a lot at the wedding, the ceremony. By the time he gets up to give a speech, he just gets up and says he's too pissed to give it. Sits back down. Uh, he's found a short time later in a bedroom by his sister in the middle of having sex with the maid of honor. <laughs> so, yeah, th- th- not a great family moment there. And um, although I had to wonder if he didn't get along well with Ray's wife, because I guess Ray really used her as a sounding board to like a really extreme extent. Like he would bring her into the studio, I think, and she would be on like the talkback mic, like offering her opinions and stuff, I think. So maybe Dave had, a, had an axe to grind with her, too. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting part of the story, which I didn't totally know until we started, you know, researching for this episode. I mean, it is almost like a pre-John and Yoko type dynamic going on in the kinks in that regard. What's interesting to me is that, you know, Ray and Dave at this point were living very different lives. You have Ray settling down into this domestic life, and then you have Dave who is really living the life of a rock star. And he's written about that, about, you know, all the adventures that he had with chemicals and and different sexual adventures that he was having in the mid-60s. And he's, like, really kind of taking advantage of, like, all of the revolutions that were happening in culture at that time. And you have Ray, who I think, you know, obviously he he loved his wife. He loved her enough to sort of involve her in the creative aspect of of the band. But you could also see that he was suffering some misery, you know, from this kind of life, you know, there's this well-known story about him having a breakdown during this period, like this emotional breakdown that was caused both by the responsibilities that he had as a family man and also just the role that he had in the kinks, that he was the one expected to keep coming up with hit songs and, and writing songs for the albums. And there's this famous story. I think this happened like when they were on tour where like he basically just like hold himself up in a in a room and with like a bunch of beer and just got loaded and like wouldn't come out for a week. Oh yeah, his daughter was born and like a week later they're like, oh yeah, that's cool. Congrats on your daughter. Uh, you got to go tour America now. So uh, so yeah, a week after his daughter's birth, he had to go out on tour. He didn't really want to do. He's already exhausted. And yeah, he just got a crate of beer shipped to his hotel and stayed in the hotel room and just got loaded every day. So he's having a really tough time. And you know. When you hear about these stories, it, it makes me think again about the songs that Ray Davies was writing at this time. And he was writing again about these uh, regular people living in domestic situations, you know, whether it's like a well-respected man or sunny afternoon, all these classic songs where it's about the facade of suburban happiness concealing like a deep dissatisfaction and alienation. And I thought a lot about this song. It's on the album Something Else. It's called Two Sisters, which is one of my favorite kink songs. And in that song, it's about these two sisters, one who is a housewife and the other who's like this free-spirited woman going about town. And the housewife is very jealous of her sister. And um, at the end of the song, the woman realizes that, no, she's happier actually being at home with her family. And she actually now feel sorry for a quote that wayward lass. That's how he, <laughs> she refers to her sister in the song. And like, it seems pretty obvious that this is a song about Ray looking at his brother Dave, that maybe on some level he felt jealous of Dave, but he justified his own life to himself by saying that like, well, he's probably actually miserable being out there partying and having sex with a bunch of people. I'm better off being where I am. I mean, doesn't that seem like a pretty straightforward interpretation of that song? 
Yeah, and I always thought that songs like Dandy and Dedicated Follower of Fashion were kind of like taking the piss out of Dave, too. Or just sort of like, because oh, they're all, yeah. they're very like looking down his nose at these people who are just like, you know, in the cool scene. And so I guess when you put that alongside two sisters, you're right. I think he's definitely talking to them. And, and two brothers is probably a little too on the nose. But yeah, that's an incredible song. So you have Ray and Dave fighting. Dave is having sex with the maid of honor at Ray's wedding. Ray is writing bitchy songs that seem like subtweets about his brother. How did this affect the rest of the band? I mean, like, I feel like the tension that was existing between the brothers, I mean, that created other problems in the kinks, didn't it? I think at some point, pretty much everybody in the kinks, it was almost like Fleetwood Mac level of, like, drawing out the map of who hates who and what the alliances are. Uh, the big other tension in the band was between Dave and his former roommate, Mick Avery, the drummer. And this... Uh, they had a big blow up on stage in Wales, I think in 1965. There are two songs into their set. And I guess Dave wasn't liking the sound that Mick was getting out of his drum kit. So he turned around and said, why don't you get your cock out and play snare with it? It'll probably <laughs> sound better. <laughs> Which, incredible, incredible. Yes, I love it. Mick did not like that and uh, didn't take too kindly to that suggestion. And so he took a cymbal and hurled it like Frisbee style at Dave's head. Which, Jesus. you know, a Frisbee, that's like odd job in Goldfinger. That's like, that, 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 could, that could kill someone. So it, it hits Dave, and he falls to the floor on the stage. He's unconscious. He's bleeding. I think he needed like 16 stitches or something. Jesus. Ray is screaming. You know, this is all in front of the, a huge crowd, a whole packed theater. Ray is screaming, my brother, my brother. They killed my brother. Mick thinks, oh, shit, I, I killed his brother. He just books it off stage, out of the theater, runs. The, the <laughs> He's police, the fugitive. He's, a He's fugitive. the fugitive at that point. The police pick him up and he denies it. And then they're like, dude, there were several thousand people who watched this happen. <laughs> like, no. So, yeah, that, that was fun. And amazingly, again, the band that fights together stays together. He stayed with the band for another couple decades, I think. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. Came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? 
a lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. You know, like... Let's say you go see the Kinks in like 1965, 1966. Like, are you disappointed if the drummer doesn't throw his cymbal at Dave Davies? Are you sort of like, ah, oh, man, I saw the Kinks and they just played Snooze. like 15 songs and it was really good, but like, whatever. There was no fighting, there's no emotional breakdowns on stage. I feel like the people that saw that show were like, this is the best rock show I've ever seen. I mean, you know, like the, the, they almost killed each other right in front of us. You know, that'd just right. be amazing. I mean, but, like, that was their reputation in the mid-60s. And, like, this story blows me away. I can't think of another band that this is true of. Like, they were actually banned from coming into America. Like, <laughs> which, like, that literally Jesus. happened. There was, like, there was the union. What was it? The American Federation of, of Musicians. They oh, issued yeah. a, bo- a boycott of the Kinks from 1964 to 1968, which, you know, just think of, like, your favorite British rock bands from the 60s. 64 to 68 is like a big chunk of time. That is like the heart of, you know, I guess the second wave of the British invasion. And they weren't allowed to come into the country. And I mean, I think some of it had to do with their reputation. But like, didn't they also just like piss off a bunch of promoters in America too? Like what what was the explanation for that? There are a couple things. There was their reputation. They got into some fight backstage with one of Dick Clark's producers who basically thought that all English people were communists and started just slagging <laughs> off British people. And Ray and Dave were not going to stand for that. They they joined forces for uh, for King and Country on that one. And so really pissed off somebody at ABC. And then I think the main problem was there was a show in Sacramento, and I forget what happened with the promoter. I think the promoter tried to, like, in advance, tried to, like, lower the rate they were going to pay him or something. They were pissed off at this promoter, so they went out on stage, and instead of playing a full set, They just played one 45-minute long version of You Really Got Me, which is kind of awesome. Like, I I would almost rather see that. They invented the Grateful Dead that night (laughs) just by being – they were like, we're going to be jerks and invent, like, jam bands tonight. I mean, there's probably no chance that that was recorded by anyone, but, like, how much would you want to hear the 45-minute pissed-off version of You Really Got Me? I mean, that would just be unbelievable. Oh, incredible. No, believe me, I, I checked when I when I heard that story. I have not been able to find it, but oh my God. So so there's all of that. And then there's also people have theorized that they just, you know, didn't pay off the right people that you needed to pay off when you were a, a rowdy band dealing with a pissed off American Federations of Musicians. So yeah, it was just bad strategy all around. I mean, I think it's interesting thinking about this now because again, like there was this four-year period where the Kinks couldn't tour in America, you know, America being like the number one touring market in the world. And I don't think there's any question that that adversely affected their career. I mean, I think that they probably, even today, like would be more famous if they could have toured America and and possibly sold 
more records here in the States uh, during that time. But in a way, too, I wonder if that helped them because it did make them, again, not as overexposed as some of their peers. And also it made them seem more special in a way, I think. Uh, and it also made them seem like outlaws, you know, like I, it definitely helped their rock and roll credibility in a way. And I also wonder, too, if that contributed to what Ray was writing about. I was like, OK, well, we're kind of dead in America. We can't get there. I'm going to write up to this really local audience that kind of isn't really being served about things that, that, that they know and relate to in their own lives, too. And, and that was why it seemed so quintessentially English, was that he was really just writing to them because he wasn't trying to break into a bigger market. So I don't know. It was a theory. I think that's totally right. And I think, you know, like here in America, there's always that subset of people. And I think you and I belong in this subset who like fetishize English music, you know, like groups that are really into their Englishness. Uh, you know, the, you know, they call them Anglophiles here in America. You know, that we, we, like, we like that idea. It, it just kind of makes it exotic in a way, even though they're singing about, you know, village greens. Like what's a village right. green? I have no <laughs> idea what that is. But, you know, like Village Green Preservation Society now, I mean, like we look at that as being this classic record. Of course, it comes out in 1968. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's considered like the greatest Kinks album. But when that album came out, I mean, it was like an enormous flop. I mean, I think it only sold like a couple thousand copies in its first week at the same time that like the Beatles were putting out the White Album and like literally selling like millions of copies, you know, like right after that album dropped. I mean, like they were pretty dead in the water commercially at that time. Which is interesting, too. I mean, you think of, of the sound is different. They're definitely not doing any more of the, like, you really got me type stuff, which probably in 68 with Hendrix and Cream and all the more heavy guitar sounding stuff might have been better suited to them rather than doing these kind of delicate village green type, almost folky songs. And it's also, it's 1968, riots in Paris, Chicago, Budapest, assassinations of Martin Luther King and, and Robert Kennedy, this Tet Offensive in Vietnam. It's just a very violent bloody year. And I feel this way about the Beach Boys Friends album, too. I feel like this kind of delicate, sweet, small-scale record was just absolutely ripped to shreds in this, like, put out into this environment. No one wanted to hear that, which is a shame, because like you said, it's one of my favorite albums of theirs, too. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the kinks went out of their way to, like, be irrelevant at that time. <laughs> like, yeah. like, we're not going to address any of the social unrest that's going on. We're not even going to really make a record that like addresses anything that is contemporary. Like we're looking backward, we're looking like at the history of our country and also at the double-edged sword of tradition. You know, like where I think a lot of bands at that time, you know, they were looking at the conventions of society in a very skeptical way. And Ray Davies could do that, but he also I think had more affection for that than a lot of other British rockers at the time, which again just put him out of step with what was going on in the culture. Yeah, I was thinking of if the Beatles went from releasing Rubber Soul to then an album that was like strictly when I'm 64, Martha my <laughs> dear type stuff. You know, that everyone be like, "Wait, what? What what are you doing like okay you, you get one of these per album but like whole thing like you're, you're way too into this yeah like they just leave helter skelter and revolution <laughs> on the cutting room floor and we're just gonna do the old-timey soft shoe ballads uh yeah that, totally yeah so the kinks were out of step and i feel like that is what led to dave davies pursuing a solo career i mean is that safe to say that like maybe there was a sense that the kinks were on their way out so then dave was gonna try to step out on his own i mean because he was like the young guitar player he was like pretty cute it seemed like maybe like he could position himself to be a star on his own 
Ray was really out of commission for a while. I think this was around the time when he had another breakdown at his home where he literally like walked several miles from a suburban home into London, like just on foot. Very like Peter Green style. I think it was a similar story with him where he he like went to his PR person and like threatened him and and ended up being like sent off to a um to a facility somewhere to like and sedated. Yeah, he, he, Ray was really going through a tough time right now. So Dave probably thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna distance myself a bit and try to like at least keep my musical career afloat. And he did very well. His song "Death of a Clown," which was co-written with Ray and included on, I think it was on something else by the Kinks, uh, went to number three in London in I think '67. So you know, not too shabby. Also, amazing song. One of my favorite Kinks songs. This is the thing about Dave Davies is that like he's not a prolific songwriter, but many of his songs are like among are among my favorite Kink songs, like Death of a Clown, uh, which again you know is co-written by Ray, so he deserves some credit for that as well. But like that's like a top five Kink song for me, and I think of the song Strangers too from oh, yeah. the Lola album um, is definitely like in my top five. So he is kind of like a George Harrison figure a little bit in this band. That like you've got the dominant songwriter who is the acknowledged genius, but like Dave was asserting himself too. But that seemed like that was also always a challenge in the Kinks. That like Ray was not gonna let Dave have like too much uh, material on a Kinks record. What do you think of Susanna's Still Alive, which I think also did really well too after uh, Death of a Clown. I think it got to like number twenty or something. It's a pretty good song. That's another great song. I love that song too. I mean, like the thing with Dave Davies is that I think he's like, he has a similar sensibility to his brother, but it's always just like a little more raw. Like his voice, I think is like such a great instrument where it has a wildness to it. It reminds me of, again, I keep comparing them to other British rock bands, but like Dave as a lead vocalist and, and especially like as a harmony vocalist, it reminds me of like Keith Richards mm. where it's like sometimes he's harmonizing with Ray and sometimes he's kind of like shouting like over over Ray, but <laughs> it has such a, like a high, lonesome, emotional quality to it. And it, it always draws me in. And I will say that, you know, I mean, I think he was born to be a sideman to his brother, ultimately. Really? Yeah, I do think so. I mean, Ray is like one of the greatest songwriters ever, uh, certainly in British rock. What Dave brought to his songs... And what he brought to Kink's records, like with his own songs, like these songs that could be kind of a contrast to what Ray was doing. It was such a great sort of pinch of like garlic, you know, in the <laughs> stew of, of, of the Kinks. Uh, I mean, it really was invaluable. I always got the impression, I mean, maybe I just have Nolan Liam on the brain, but personality-wise, Dave felt like more of a, of a lead vocalist to me. And I was always kind of surprised that he wasn't. I mean, I always thought he had the talent and I could see just Ray more personality kind of wanting to be the rhythm guitarist in the back who was the one making all these great songs like Noel. But yeah, that, that always surprised me that they went that way. I mean, you can see like once the kinks move into the seventies that Ray becomes like much more demonstrative where at times, like if you watch, if you go on YouTube and you see like kinks performances from like 1972, 73, it's almost like Ray is trying to be like Mick Jagger a little bit. Like there was a period, I think, where he stopped playing guitar on stage a lot and he would kind of prance around and, you know, be more of a front man. I also wonder how much that had to do with his life falling apart a little bit around that time. I mean, because, you true. know, like, like, like by 73, his marriage, I think, had ended and it seems like he was really hitting like the booze and the pills pretty hard at that time. Yeah, which is... 
a shame because the albums they released from like 68 to 73 are actually some of my favorites. Actually, Arthur is, I think, my favorite Kinks record. I, I just think that's an amazing, as a concept, the songs start to finish just are unbelievable. What do, what do you think of Arthur? Yeah, that's like probably my favorite too. Like Arthur, you know, it'd either be Arthur, like Lola's awesome, Muswell Hillbillies. I mean, Village Green is great. I mean, Arthur on most days is my favorite, but like there's other days where I could pick any one of those other records. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it came out of a tremendous amount of pain for him, and he had a major collapse on stage, right? Like in the middle of a show. Yeah, like in 1973, it was. And uh, I mean, and I think that's like when his wife left him. Like, like he was married. He had two daughters. His wife left, and I mean, it was like a very dramatic type thing. I mean, didn't he like kiss his brother on the cheek or something and say like, "Thank you all for everything you've done," uh, but I'm but I'm done. I mean, it's almost sort of like like a suicide note type breakup. I mean, it's very alarming when it happened. Oh yeah, I think it was that was the same night that he went home and took a bottle of pills and went to his girlfriend and basically told her what he'd done. And he was rushed to a London hospital. When he arrived, he declared, "I'm Ray Davies, and I'm dying." Before collapsing in the lobby. So, oh man, elements of drama there. You're not wrong. I think years later, he tried to explain it away, being like, you know what? I was having a really hard time. The doctor gave me these pills and said, take one of these when you feel bad. And I was feeling bad a lot. But I think another time he basically admitted, like, yeah, it was a it was a suicide attempt. And like, you know, to his credit, like Dave stepped up and he was, I think, pretty supportive of him, of him at this time. I mean, like he took him to Denmark, I think, like on a vacation. And uh, I think he was like playing him Chuck Berry songs or, or like, or maybe they were jamming on Chuck Berry songs together. But he's basically trying to cheer his brother up. And I, I feel like that worked for him at that time. Yeah, it definitely raised his spirits. But I personally like to almost pretend that the band broke up after everybody's in showbiz because I... All the mid-70s stuff, I, I just, I can't deal with. So, I mean, the good news was Ray survived, your spirit was restored. The bad news is the stuff he released for, I think, the rest of the 70s was terrible. I, I read somebody's quote once said, Ray Davies spent the 60s building a reputation as a great songwriter and the 70s destroying that reputation. And I don't know, I just, when was the last time you listened to Preservation Act 1 or Act 2? Like, well, I have to say that I recently made a playlist of 14 songs taken from those two albums. And the, with the idea being that, like, okay, I'm going to be the A&R guy for the Kinks, that the one that they didn't have in the 70s. And I'm going to say, like, you can't put these two <laughs> albums out, but I'm going to take the best songs and make one record, and we're not going to care about this storyline. You know, the storyline of Preservation Act, which I, I don't even want to get into. It's, it's sort of like the music man, isn't it? Isn't it yeah. like a guy comes into a town and he's, like, exactly. kind of conning them, blah, blah, blah. Anyway... But he's dressed like the Harlequin, fort- too, isn't he? There's, like, some really tragic outfit that he would wear on stage. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like the Riddler at times <laughs> yeah, on stage yeah. like, with this thing. It's really, it doesn't really work. But, like, the album I made from those two albums, I think, is actually quite good. I mean, there's songs on there like Sweet Genevieve, which is a great oh. song. Um, there's a bunch of, like, really good songs from that from that era. But you're right. I mean, I think the problem was that instead of just focusing on great songs, he got distracted with these big concepts, like albums like Sleepwalker and Misfits, like where the kinks were taking cues from the punk bands that they inspired originally, you know, like they were making records that were kind of in the style of like the jam or the clash a little bit, although with more of like an arena rock type sheen to it. So I think those albums are actually pretty good. I'd recommend those, but you're right. I mean, I think at this time it was more about the kinks legend 
And a lot of that legend had to do with Ray and Dave hating each other. And I wonder, too, if Ray, now that he had access to America again, was really trying to fight for sort of the the global critical acclaim that he felt he'd been denied with stuff like Village Green and Arthur and stuff, which, you know, were not massive hits. I mean, Lola aside, I don't really think that they reached their mid-60s commercial peak again until the MTV era, right? I, I So I, I could see him just, like, really gunning for almost, like, Brian Wilson-level, like, no, I'm going to make a statement, and no one was interested. So then when they would do albums like Low Budget or Misfits or Sleepwalker, that was when they were signed with Clive Davis on Arista. And I can imagine Clive Davis was just like, no, no. just he. I could see him being really instrumental and just telling them, give me a hit. I, I don't care about this pretentious stuff. Just give me a hit. And it worked. It worked. And I think the Kinks, you know, into the late 70s, into the 80s, like were a pretty popular live act. Like they could go out and they could perform and they would do these sort of like souped up versions of like their old 60s hits where they kind of sound like Night Ranger playing like (laughs) their 60s hits, you know, which is like kind of a mixed bag at times. But, you know, with all the tension that was going on between Ray and Dave, and again, I think that um, as the Kinks became this legacy act, essentially, and this this band that you would go see because of their iconic status and maybe not so much for like the records that they were putting out at that particular time, so much of that was like about the relationship between Ray and Dave and like the continued tension that would exist. And it's interesting, like as they got older, how they would comment on that in their music. Like there's that song Hatred uh, from like one of their like their last studio records, which is Phobia from 1993. Have you heard that song? Oh my God. I, I thought it was it was satire, but it, it also there's so many specifics in there. You could tell it's definitely born from something. Yeah, there's, there's this lyric in there. You go, you keep on accusing me of making your life misery, but if that's not abusing me, what isn't? You want to be my friend? Well, it's too late. My love for you has turned to hate. And then, you know, so one of the finest lyricists of his generation. Yeah, I know it's, it's a little kinks by numbers, you know. And again, it just seems like okay, you know, our relationship has been a problem in this band for a long time but now like we're gonna have sort of like a winking acknowledgement of it we're gonna you know make it work for us that we you know we're gonna play it up almost like again like a pro wrestling aspect right. which i think happened i mean we talked about that in our our liam and noel gallagher episode that i think especially for liam gallagher in re- in recent years he has been playing up the, the pro wrestling aspect of his tension with his brother that like there's a performative aspect to it where it's like well this is what people expect so like we we have to acknowledge it we have to have fun with it like there's this clip on youtube of ray and dave giving an interview i think it's like on entertainment tonight yeah it's so weird that they're there yeah and like i think i don't know if they're promoting phobia or some other kinks record but like isn't there a clip like where like ray starts like choking dave or is it the other way around i i think it was I think it was Ray choking Dave. Yeah. And it, it's, and I think they're, ta- I think it was for phobia. And I think that they're talking about hatred, which, you know, really, like you said, I think it was maybe more of a pro wrestling move, but I don't know. Dave seems genuinely annoyed. He's like, every time he <laughs> starts to try to speak, Ray kind of like cuts him off and it's funny for a bit, but Ray then just pushes it a little too far. And Dave starts getting like, it seems real. It's, it's definitely a fun watch though. Yeah. So there's, Again, this aspect where it's performative, but it's also not performative. Like, they're yeah. playing it up in the media, but they also don't really like each other. And it really comes to a head, I guess, what, like in 1996? I mean, that's when they broke up. Yeah, I mean, Phobia, I think, made it as high as, like, 166 for one week on the charts and stuff. So commercially, oh. they were not at their peak. And so there wasn't a, a huge amount of reason to keep the band together unless they actually liked being together. 
which it's pretty clear at this point they did not. And kind of the, the final straw for Dave was um, was his own birthday party. Ray, uh, he wanted to throw himself a birthday party. I guess he didn't have the money, so Ray did it for him. And he threw this big party, and then uh, Ray got up on the table and gave a toast. It was supposed to be for Dave, but it just wound up Ray praising himself, saying what a great guy he was. And then ending the toast by stomping on the cake, the birthday cake for his brother, which echoes of, of the wedding, maybe echoes of Ray's wedding where, where Dave got drunk and didn't give a speech. Maybe. I don't know. I thought that was a nice way to bookend their dysfunctional kinks career. But um, so you think he was playing the long game with that? You think he was like waiting for like another occasion where he could just like, OK, you ruined my wedding. So I'm going to I'm going to wait 20 years or I guess it was 30 years, 30 uh, years. Yeah, I'm going to pay for this cake. And then I'm going to stomp on it. You know, like That's how petty I am about you. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, no. like, there is this deep dislike. But yes, I think when you stomp on your brother's birthday cake, <laughs> your band is probably done at that point. It's probably time to pack it in. I mean, yeah, that's a new one. I mean, for all the feuds that we've talked about, I don't think there's been a, a stomping on a birthday cake incident yet. I think this is a first. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. We've had shoe throwing. And we've had, you know, various, you know, fists being thrown and spittle being shot out of mouths. But yeah, never had a cake stomping. So thank you, Ray and Dave, for that. So the band is done after that. And what's interesting to me, because, like, again, this is the kink. So there's never any shortage of drama. So they both have, like, these pretty terrible health scares in the odds. I think they both occurred in 2004. And the first was Dave. Like, didn't he have a stroke? Yeah, he was leaving like a book signing or something. And he got out of an elevator and all of a sudden he just collapsed on the floor. And they rushed him to a hospital and, and he'd had a stroke. So he he sent home to recuperate. And Ray, to his credit, goes to look after him. And it's going along really well for a couple of weeks. And then, according to Dave at least, Ray couldn't stand not being the center of attention. So he started screaming, I'm in pain. Oh, my God. I got this like huge pain in my stomach. Something's going on. Take me to the hospital. He gets to the hospital and the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with you, Ray Davies. I, I, you're, this is in your head. So <laughs> Dave thinks that, that he just can't stand to be the center of attention, which uh, I enjoy that. I don't know. Psychosomatic pains. This makes the other story like, pretty incredible because like later on in 2004, Ray was actually like shot during an attempted <laughs> robbery. In New Orleans, I think he was like, I think like his uh, his girlfriend, like, like someone snatched her purse and he like went after the thief and then he got shot. So maybe that's just him being a glory hawk again. You know, it's like this is an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, he paid the guy. He paid. It's like exactly. that's a Curb episode, like, isn't it? That's something from Curb. Where he like pays somebody to like snatch somebody's purse so that uh, so that he can like tackle him to the ground and look like a hero. Same thing. So I mean, now we're at a point where you know they've had all this bad blood going on over the years. But, like, it looks like they're going to really do this reunion, right? I mean, the reason why I'm, like, a little unsure is because, like, the way that this was announced was really weird. Oh, so weird. I mean, like, Ray basically said it in the middle of an interview, but, like, it seems like he maybe wasn't supposed to say it. I mean, who answers their cell phone in the middle of, a like, a taped televised interview? So it almost made me seem like he wanted to get the guy's attention. It seemed a little too staged. So he's giving an interview on, I think, BBC or something, and his phone rings, and he's, like, kind of muttering into it, and they stop taping, and the interviewer is just kind of killing time waiting for Ray to hang up. And then Ray said, all right, Mick, see you at the pub later. And the interviewer says, wait, Mick, like, Mick Avery, like, the drummer for your old band, The Kinks, that you haven't played with in 20 years? Yeah, 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 we're, we're, we're going to the pub later. Oh, that's interesting why oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna get the kinks back together wait are you serious 
Yeah, it was this really like <laughs> shambolic, like this is your big, ana- like you're doing it like in between takes of a TV interview to promote your new solo single. But yeah, I never understood why he did it that way. If it was staged or if it was just a really poorly thought out announcement. Yeah, it's like the worst press release of all time. You know, right. I, I I don't understand that. But, but you know, I mean, and of course, who knows when we're going to have tours again at any rate. So that, that you know, just the state of the world right now, it's hard to know, you know, what will happen with this reunion. You also don't want these guys commingling with, with each other, you know, at least hopefully they'll be wearing masks because I would assume Ray and Dave are both in the highly uh, susceptible to, you know, infectious diseases uh, type camp. So hopefully they'll be all right. But, you know, it would be great to see these guys playing together again. I also read too, I don't know if you saw this, but like, this is a story from like 2019. Apparently like they live next door to each other now in, in London. I didn't see that. Or at least they have like houses next to each other. So like, I don't know, like maybe it's not like their primary residence, but yeah, like some London tabloid took a photo of Ray and Dave, like taking out their garbage together or something. <laughs> I've not heard that. Wow. So, you know, this could either be like the best thing in their relationship or they could end up like burning each other's houses down, you know? Who knows what will happen? Hopefully it won't happen before these guys actually get back together. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. 
Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So this is the part of the episode where we look at the pro side of each part of the rivalry. And let's start with Dave Davies. You know, I think we've talked about this already, about just his stature as an incredible guitar player. I think as a, as a player who's been very influential in like punk and heavy metal, even if like Ray himself has not always given his brother credit. I also think that he's like a pretty underrated songwriter. Like I said, like some of my favorite Kink songs are by Dave. Not questioning the primacy of, of Ray Davies in the Kinks, but Dave, I think, again, being like the George Harrison of this band, um, I think always supplied a really nice dash of his own voice to all the great Kinks records. Um, and again, ultimately, you know, you know, if we go back to what's at the heart of their conflict, it seems like they would argue about credit above anything else. And Ray not wanting to give Dave his props for what he contributed to the band. And I mean... It seems like we both agree that like Dave has a point with that. Oh yeah, I think he's the soul of the band. In a lot of ways I see him as like how Dennis Wilson was the guy in the Beach Boys who actually surfed. Dave was the one who was actually out in the scene that Ray was commenting on and kind of like feeding back the specifics of what was happening to him. I yeah, I always thought and even in the early photo shoots when they have the red hunting jackets and whips and all these kind of kinky things, like that was Dave's idea. So I, I think that that so much of that image the band's image and soul was from him like i said i'm still so shocked that he wasn't a lead singer i i he really still seems like somebody that would have shown in that way and although i guess the fact that he's still shown out just as kind of being a side guitar i mean he wasn't a side guitarist he's dave davies one of the best guitarists ever but like the fact that he was able to do so while not being a lead singer i think is impressive uh his guitar playing Jesus Christ. I mean, I, there are all these rumors about Jimmy Page actually playing some of the uh, guitar solos on the early Kink songs. It's, it's not true, but I love the story that Jimmy Page was apparently in the control room when they were playing uh, Dave's guitar solo for All Day and All the Night Back. And Jimmy just winced because he was like, what is that? That's not how you do a guitar <laughs> solo. But it's like it's like the ultimate garage band guitar solo. I feel like he made the template. Like him and, and the Kingsman and Louie Louie. Uh, lay the template for like garage rock i feel like oh yeah and like look again if we talk about punk rock they tried to play like dave davies not jimmy page you know yeah. and like that sort of like anti-technique that he brought to the guitar again is so influential i think uh and uh, you know anyone that just wanted to play gut level rock and roll like those early kinks songs are just so essential uh and yeah and dave has a lot to do with that going to the pro ray side Look, I think, again, like I said, I think he's like one of the great songwriters of, of British rock. In a way, I feel like he's underrated now because, you know, we, we talk so much about, you know, Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards, you know, Pete Townsend, all the greats, all these people that had more commercial success and, and had a higher profile in America than the Kinks did. But if you look at Ray's best material and just like how much melody there is in those songs and like how smart the lyrics are, I feel like Ray really is uncommonly gifted. And, you know, we've made several comparisons to Oasis in this episode. But, like, to me, as much as I love Oasis and I love Noel Gallagher, he can't touch Ray Davies in terms of songwriting, especially, like, as a lyricist. Like, as a lyricist, they're not even in the same ballpark. 
And I think when you factor in those songs and the fact that so many people have covered them and they translate so well to different places and like how, again, I feel like because Ray Davies wrote about things that were not typical of the time, you know, he had the focus on England, he had the focus on sort of regular people, you know, it's just proven to be so influential for people that are looking, I I think, for something a little bit different than like what you get from a traditional rock song. You know, as much as Dave, I think, contributed to the sound and the attitude of the kinks, you know, at the heart of this band is the songs. And you got to give Ray his credit for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in America, I think he's way more underrated than he should be. And he gets so many props for his lyrics. But you're right. As as a melody maker, absolutely unparalleled. I mean, I can't believe we haven't mentioned Waterloo Sunset yet. Oh, man. I think one of the most gorgeous songs ever written. Like, it's up there with God Only Knows for me in terms of like Days. That song, Days, oh, oh, yeah. it's beautiful. You know, yeah, you, you said oh. Shangri-La before. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, This Time Tomorrow. I mean, yeah, there's so many songs you could mention. If nothing else, if he'd never written anything other than Waterloo Sunset, I think that Ray deserves his knighthood and all of the praise <laughs> that he's ever gotten since. I mean, that's just unbelievable. So when we look at these two guys together, you know, I think it's pretty clear that what made the Kinks great and what really makes any rock band great is a combination of songwriting and swagger, melody and mayhem, and like, brains and balls. <laughs> and I think Ray brought the former and Dave brought the latter. Um, and also, you know, fighting is such a big part <laughs> of the Kinks story. And as you know, miserable as it was for these guys probably to be around each other, it makes for a great rock band. I mean, we like that tension in bands. We like how that can create a lot of energy that translates in the music. And I think that spirit, that battling spirit, um, really gives these songs an edge that to this day makes them so powerful. Yeah, I mean, rock and roll is about so much aggression. I mean, you've got all the familial stuff that they're working out on stage and on the mic. You're right, it just kicks it up to, to such another level. And it's interesting, too, that for all the differences of opinion and arguments that, that Ray and Dave have had over the years, it doesn't seem like they've had very many musical differences. in terms. Of, aside from credit, it seems like it was never like, no, it should go like this, no, it should go like this, or I want more of my songs on there. Which is interesting because you would think that there would be more fights about that, like in terms of like, you know, with the band or something like that, with songwriting credits and everything. But it's it's fascinating that it really was personal. It was, I think, Dave would later say, you know, Ray's a clever guy, an observer, very good at expressing himself in music, very articulate about other people's feelings, but he wasn't good at expressing his own feelings or telling you how much he cares about you. And that's, I think, the crux of of what went on between them. Yeah, it, man, it's it's an old story in rock and roll. It's an old story in the world. I mean, you know, we we joked about Cain and Abel in our Oasis episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a very Cain and Abel lab type story here um, with, with Ray and Dave. You know, this idea, again, that, like, you love this person, but you also feel like they're not giving you the respect that you deserve. And uh, it never goes away, even as you are almost 80 years old now, like both of these guys. I feel like there's probably still some of that lingering between them. I just want you to know, Jordan, that I respect what you bring to our show. I think you are a well-respected man. (laughs) Oh, Stephen, thank you so much. I'd like to take this opportunity to say how much I care about you. Oh, well, it's a sunny afternoon here on the Rivals Podcast. So thank you all for listening. Got a Waterloo sunset over on the lake right where I am. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode. We will be back with more Rivals and Beefs and Long Simmering Resentments next week.
Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstack. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.